Good evening. Welcome this beautiful Christmas Eve to Queen Anne Lutheran Church, proclaiming the love of God in Christ for every person. If you are a longtime member, we are glad to see you. If you are a visitor, you are most welcome. Either way, we're glad you are among us. As a gift to yourself and to your neighbor, we invite you at this time, please, to silence your cell phones. Our service, with the exception of individuals up here at the chancel, uh, will um, involve you remaining masked throughout the entire uh, worship. If you have trouble singing through your mask, that's totally fine, understandable. Let the rest of the congregation carry you in song. At the end of our service, normally we would have a special individual candle lighting ceremony where we sing Silent Night. However, given the limitations the pandemic has placed upon us, we will simply dim the lights and enjoy the candles that are already lit. I invite you at this time, please, to rise for a brief order of confession and forgiveness as printed on page two of your worship bulletin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. In the mercy of the one who is, Jesus Christ was given to die for you, and for his sake, God forgives you all your sins. To those who believe in Jesus Christ, he gives the power to become the children of God and bestows on them the Holy Spirit. Please remain standing for our processional hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful, number 283 in in the hymnal.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alleluia. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise the Lord, all you angels. The Lord has raised up strength for the people and praise for all faithful servants. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Ever-present God, you made this holy night shine with the brightness of your light. Grant that we may walk in the light of Jesus' way, and in the last day wake to the brightness of his glory. Through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. The, the first reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 2 through 7. This poem promises deliverance from Assyrian oppression, a hope based on the birth of a royal child with a name full of promise. While Judah's king will practice justice and righteousness, the real basis for faith lies in God's passion for his people. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of the Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and for his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the hosts, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Word of God, word of life.
The second reading is from the letter of Titus, chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. The appearance of God's grace in Jesus Christ brings salvation for all humanity. Consequently, in the present, we live wisely and justly while also anticipating the hope of our Savior's final appearance. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He it is who, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are jealous, zealous for good deeds. Word of God, word of life. Please rise. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the second chapter. In those days, a decree went out from the Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver the child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. 
To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Grace to you and peace from God, the source of life, and from Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of learning a dark secret about someone you admire? It can be devastating, especially if you really look up to that person. To offer a famous example, consider Martin Luther King. Many of us, myself included, admire King for the tremendous societal reforms he inspired throughout the civil rights era of the 1960s. He was a great orator. He was a man with an incomparable vision of justice and equality. And he was a true witness to the faith, a Christian who for once stood on the right side of history. Yet he was also a plagiarist. Not only did he borrow extensively and without citation major components of his most famous speech, I Have a Dream, he also copied a significant amount of material written by another student for his doctoral dissertation. How disappointing for any of us who look up to King to see such a great man succumb to this form of temptation. What a challenge this presents us, namely to acknowledge that while King was a prophet and before God in Christ a saint, he was also a sinner like you and me in need of redeeming. This past week, I too learned a dark secret about someone, or rather something, for which I previously had great, great admiration. It disturbed me, so much so that I scrapped the sermon I had originally prepared for tonight's service. I'm speaking about our second reading, Paul's letter to Titus. This letter is one of the shortest in the New Testament. It consists of a mere three chapters. The consensus among critical scholars is that while the letter was attributed to Paul, it was not actually written until the end of the first century, that is, several decades after Paul died. We have evidence in the letter to support this claim. 
In chapter 1-7, for instance, the author refers to the qualifications necessary for a man to hold the office of bishop. Paul, on the other hand, uses the term bishop only once in the seven letters scholars unanimously agree he wrote. It appears in Philippians 1.1, where he greets the bishops and deacons who live among the Christian community in Philippi. Experts agree, as do most modern English translations, that the alternative translation of overseers and helpers is preferable to bishops and deacons. Why? Because these functions were not yet the church offices in Paul's lifetime that they will later become. The church, in other words, had not yet evolved into an institution replete with a hierarchy of power. It was still a ragtag sect of Judaism that had just begun to preach to the Gentiles or non-Jews who were inspired by, get this, Paul's vision of living as a community of equals in Christ, a point to which we shall return momentarily. That all said, it's not the issue of who wrote Titus that troubled me when I reread the letter earlier this week. As a pastor of the Lutheran Church, I affirm, as Martin Luther did, that the authority of any writing in the New Testament depends not on who wrote it, but on whether it contains the gospel. Not on who wrote it, but whether it contains the gospel. That is, whether it points us to Christ and what God has done in Christ to free us from sin and death. Yet before I tell you what truly disturbed me about this letter, something I suspect will disturb many of you as well, let me share with you a couple of things I like about it, which is rather uncharacteristic of me. For years, I have admired Titus for its view of salvation. In language that would be offensive to some Christians today, this letter tells us that the grace of God has appeared in Christ, and I quote, bringing salvation to all. Let me repeat what I just said. According to Titus 2.11, God's grace, God's love, has appeared in Christ to bring salvation to all people. That presumably includes not only other Christians, like the Presbyterians, it even includes non-Christians, like the Episcopalians. I had so much fun writing that. I'm actually a huge fan of the Episcopalian Church, but it was fun. In addition to its broad scope regarding who Jesus saves, Titus also broadens the scope of how Jesus saves, which is another reason I like it. Now listen closely. Some of you may have never heard this before. While many Christians restrict 
the locus of salvation to Jesus' death on the cross, the place where he died for our sins, Titus says nothing explicitly about the crucifixion. Instead, as evident in verses 11 through 14, we learn that the grace of God has appeared, literally been manifested in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Christ, in other words, not only died for you, me, and all people in his search for a lost and alienated humanity, to quote the theologian Douglas John Hall. He was also born for you, as the angel proclaims in our gospel reading for this evening. He subsequently lived for you, showing you how to be a follower of the way, his way, by caring for the poor, by loving your neighbor as yourself, and even by loving your enemies. Lastly, he was raised for you, opening to you a new pathway, rather a pathway to new life, by conquering death, which by itself the crucifixion cannot do. Think about it. If Christ died on the cross without being raised, then his death would be just another tragedy in the annals of history. Death would still have the last word, and our faith, as Paul says, would be in vain. Now there's still more. Beyond what Titus says regarding who Jesus saves, namely all people, as well as how Jesus saves, namely through his birth, life, death, and resurrection, there is one more thing I really like about Titus. In my opinion, and with one exception, this letter offers the best summation of the gospel according to Paul in the entire New Testament. And it does so in just two paragraphs. First, in 2, 11 through 14, which we heard a little earlier, and second in 3, 4 through 7, one of our readings for tomorrow. In Titus 2.14, we learn how Christ saves us by liberating us from the power of sin, which is another way of saying, in the author's language, that Christ redeems us from all iniquity. Now notice here the word redeems. It means to buy back from slavery, to free us, as we said in our confession, from the bondage of sin. Sin, in other words, is not simply doing something bad. According to Paul in Romans and Galatians, it is the cosmic power that exists in opposition to God, one that compels us to engage in behaviors that harm us as well as those around us. Daniel Goleman, the best-selling psychologist and guru of emotional intelligence, offers an equivalent term, I like this. He calls it neural hijacking. Neural hijacking, which is evident in moments where we lose our self-control and lash out at other Grace, on the other hand, is the power of what the biblical scholar Beverly Gaventa calls God's reckless love. The power of God that enters the world through Christ to counteract the power of sin and set us free to exist peacefully with one another
and to help each other through the expression of good deeds. That is what I love about this letter. Titus offers us the gospel in its most compact form. It's like getting the good news to go. <laughs> now, if Titus is so great, you might be wondering, what's wrong with it? What's in it that should give us pause? Well, apart from reading the rest of the letter, none of which appears in our common lectionary, I will tell you. That's why I'm glad you're here tonight. Titus resurrects a social hierarchy in the church that Paul's version of the gospel originally destabilized. In Galatians 3.28, a favorite of one of our most recent confirmants, Paul writes that all are one in Christ, slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female. In contrast, Titus 2.9 says that slaves should, quote, be submissive to their masters and give satisfaction in every respect. They are not to talk back. The author establishes a hierarchy here of master over slave, which explains why the African American Christian heritage has quite understandably cast Paul in a negative light. Howard Thurman a great African-American theologian of the 20th century offers an example. He recalls how his grandmother, who was enslaved as a child, would ask him to read the scripture to her, but rarely asked for the writings of Paul. When Thurman asked why, she notes that the slave master's preacher would often remind the slaves that Paul said slavery was God's will, and several times a year would quote Titus 2.9, which says slaves should submit to and honor their masters. How awful. This is why it's so crucial to understand that Paul did not write Titus. That the letter actually contradicts Paul's vision of an egalitarian community of believers by replicating the household codes of the broader Greco-Roman society of the late first century. This is when the church as an institution began setting up social hierarchies of master over slave and male over female that Paul, once again, originally destabilized in passages like Galatians 3.28, where he insists that all are one in Christ. We see evidence for male over female in Titus 2.3-5. There the author tells older women to behave modestly and teach younger women of faith to do the same so that they will submit to their husbands and thus embrace their subordinate status in the household. I would never work with you now. <laughs> thus, while Paul uses the metaphor of the body to say that everyone in the community, no matter what their role, has its place, Titus 
establishes a clear social hierarchy in which the overarching message is that everyone in the faith community should know their place. Know their place. Now you can see what disturbed me. It's not what we read in Titus 2, 11-14, or 3, 4-7. It's what we find in the rest of the letter. Wow, that's quite a hole to dig. What do we do? How do we resolve this problem? Well, in most cases, well, well, in most cases, I would say we turn to Jesus. In this case, we should probably turn to Martin Luther. Here's why. Luther had a great way of viewing the Bible. He called it the cradle of the Christ child. Here he writes, you will find the swaddling cloths and the manger in which Christ lies and to which the angels point the shepherds. Simple and lowly are these swaddling cloths, but dear is their treasure, Christ, who resides in them. Now consider Titus. What if this letter is like the Bible, but in miniature form? A cradle with Christ, that is, its gospel, at its core, which nevertheless rests in swaddling cloths that are not only simple, but honestly credible. Think about it. A manger is a long open box or trough for livestock to eat from. Anybody who's lived on a farm or been on a farm knows it's dirty and it's messy. Yet from it, we can extract the gospel which we hear tonight in Titus 2, 11-14. The grace, the unfathomable love of God has appeared, bringing wholeness and healing to you, me, and all people. We hear it again in Titus 3, 4, which speaks of God's goodness and loving kindness, as well as how God saved us not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth, baptism, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You are claimed. You are loved. And there's nothing you can do about it. There are no requirements. There are no conditions. You are accepted. God embraces you all the way down to the core of your being, freeing you to live for others instead of only for yourself. What a message of incredible, transformative good news. God loves you more than you could ever know. Titus, therefore, is like a manger with muck in it. But this same manger cradles Christ in the form of the gospel. To use a phrase that I don't normally like, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But we also don't have to affirm everything Titus says. Like Paul, 
Martin Luther King likewise endeavored to bring down the social hierarchies of both the church as well as the culture at large. And yet, like Titus, King possessed a dark secret. We too have our dark secrets, things we have done, as we said in the confession, as well as things we have left unknown. Yet it's the core message in Titus that announces forgiveness for you, for me, for King, and for its author. None of us are perfect, yet through Christ God forgives us, renews us, and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. We are, as the first Luther rightly taught, sinner and saint simultaneously. May each of us learn the compassion accordingly to forgive each other as well as ourselves, to find in our neighbor the core that God has redeemed even as the clay jar that holds it remains broken. And may our focus always be on Christ, the Savior who lies cradled in the messy messenger, and all God's people said. Amen.
Joining our voices with the heavenly host and Christians throughout time and space, let us pray for the church, the world, and all in need. Love proclaims that a Savior has been born to us. Inspire your church throughout the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus' birth to all who seek salvation, restoration, wholeness, health, healing, and new life. Lord, in your mercy. Love whispers to a weary world that the time for rest and restoration has come. Maintain healthy cycles of wake and sleep for all creatures. Where light pollution disrupts natural rhythms, encourage new practices. Lord, in your mercy. Love cries to a warring world that the time for peace is at hand. Direct those in power who make decisions on behalf of others, that they nurture and sustain all that is healthy, good, egalitarian, and holy. Lord, in your mercy. Love sings through the wails of a newborn baby. Respond to all who cry out in pain, despair, or need this night. Bring comfort to those for whom separation, grief, or loss makes the Christmas season especially difficult. Lord, in your mercy. Love murmurs words of comfort to a newborn child and exhausted parents. Bless new and expectant parents or caregivers, especially those who are alone or afraid this night. Pour out your love upon families of every kind. Lord, in your mercy. For whom or what else do the people of God pray? Gratitude for the presence of my daughter and her fiance. They're from Australia. 
Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Hear our prayer. God's ever-present love is proclaimed through the faithful who came before us. We give you thanks for Mary, John the baptizer, Elizabeth his mother, Joseph the dreamer, and all who point toward your love. Lord, in your mercy. Rejoicing in your word made flesh among us, we commend these prayers to you, confident of your grace and love that has appeared to all in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Please rise as you are able for the great thanksgiving on page nine of your bulletin. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. 
Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is indeed right, our duty and our joy, that we should at all times and in all places give thanks and praise to you, Almighty and merciful God, through our Savior Jesus Christ. You comforted your people with the promise of the Redeemer, through whom you will also make all things new in the day when he comes to judge the world in righteousness. And so with all the choirs of angels, with the church on earth and the hosts of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it for all to drink saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. Lord, help us to work toward your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. If you wish to partake in communion this evening, we invite you at this time, please, to take out your communable and receive the bread and wine at my direction. In Christ's manger, at Christ's table, come, see how God is made known to you. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you.
Let us pray. We thank you, wondrous God, for Jesus, God with us, in these gifts of bread and wine. As we have shared this feast of love, strengthen us to share your love with all the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We invite you briefly to be seated for announcements. Once again, a warm welcome to all of you this Christmas Eve for our annual candlelight service. We are glad you're here. I wanted to take this opportunity to thank the many people who helped make this service possible, whether it's the case of our acolyte, our reader, uh, the choir, the ushers, the counters, the incredible altar guild that we have. All of this is because of you. So thank you for, on behalf of Queen Anne Lutheran for your service to this community. And God's peace be with you all. I would also like to thank all of you who uh, joined us and invite you to join us once again tomorrow at 11 a.m. for a lovely Christmas uh, carols and singing service. And then on Sunday, we will resume our normal worship, but only at the 10.30 service. There will be no 8.30 or 8 o'clock service. Um, finally, on January the 2nd, we have no 8 o'clock service, but there will be a 10.30 service. I also want to acknowledge, finally, that I realized right near the end of my sermon that my microphone went off, and it's like, oh, just one detail that I overlooked. So I'm hopeful that you were able to hear the message, which was really meant to encourage you not only to read Scripture critically through the lens of the gospel, but also hopefully to hear the word of grace for each of you spoken this evening. With that, I would like you please to rise for the benediction. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit through Christ Jesus the Word made flesh. Amen. Our sending hymn will be sung to uh, Darkened Lights, uh, Silent Night, number 281 in the hymnal.
peace. Rejoice in Christ our Savior.